everyone. You're listening to the Ultimate Outcomes Sermon Podcast. Our goal at Ultimate Outcomes is to help Christians understand and apply God's Word more fully. Here's Richard with today's sermon. Thanks for listening. Think about the statement, uh, it is your duty. Uh, When you hear the statement, it is your duty, isn't it true that that statement sometimes comes with uh, kind of a heavy sense to it? It is your duty. Um, Now think about this for a second. Is is it ever considered uh, somebody's duty to do something that is wrong? Uh, Would you ever say it is your duty to... um, Weave in and out of traffic on the freeway and uh, scare half the public half to death and race your friend uh, to get to a destination in time. Would you ever say it's your duty to do that? Would you ever say it's your duty to, uh, to deface uh, some wall somewhere and deface somebody other's property? You'd never say it was your duty to do that. Would you ever say it was your duty to take something that doesn't belong to you? Or would you ever say, it's my duty to be late to uh, an, ob- an obligation where I'm supposed to be? Or it's my duty to, to be selfish? We, we would never consider anything that, we're, that we relate to being our duty to be doing something that is wrong. Now, that's an insightful uh, truth because um, the question you ask from that is, uh, if, if, it's, if it's never our duty to do something that's wrong, um, why is it that sometimes we think our duty is a burdensome thing? If we think our duty is a burdensome thing, then we'd have to extrapolate that to the idea that somehow uh, doing what is right sometimes is a burden to us. Uh, and uh, if doing what is right is sometimes a burden to us, doesn't that Uh, give us insight into the human condition. Um, Isn't it because uh, we don't always want to do what is right, what we want to do doesn't always equal what we ought to do, is why it is that duty is sometimes considered a burden to us. Doesn't that reveal that uh, we have desires that are in opposition to what is good and right, And because we have desires that are in opposition to what we ought to do or what is good and right, that sometimes duty, what what is right to do, seems like something we would want to resist doing. This idea that duty sometimes uh, is a burden reveals a central problem to the fallen condition of mankind. Now, we never think of duties that we like to do as duties. If we like to do something, we really don't think of it as a duty. We think of it as something we like to do, even though it is the right thing to do, and it's a duty. We usually think of duties as those things that we have to do that we don't want to do, right? Uh, If if it's something we really want to do, it's hard to think of it as a duty. Uh, But duties that we don't want to do, uh, you know, they seem burdensome. And why uh, does doing what is right seem burdened to us? burdensome to us. Why do we sometimes not want to do good? Why is it that we sometimes really don't want to do what is right? Why, uh, what does that reveal about us? And, um, you know, what does it reveal about us when we, when we don't want to do what we ought to do, when we don't want to do what is right? There are three main themes uh, in scripture. And the first theme is that God is good. The second theme is that man has fallen. Uh, 
And the third theme is in his goodness and in his love, God desires and has made a way to restore fallen humanity back into a state of righteousness. The critics of the Bible uh, attack these three, th- three, three themes and they uh, say that God is not good. They say that man is good by nature and they say that man can solve his own problems without God's help. Uh, so the question is, is God good? And God is good. Is the Bible a history of the relationship with God and man where God is seeking to restore man to a righteous condition? And in fact, the Bible is such a history. The Bible can be broken down into two agreements, two main agreements that God has made with man. We call the Old Testament the Old Testament or the Old Covenant because that means the old agreement that God has made with mankind. And it's an agreement that God makes with mankind in order to uh, transform mankind from what they are into what they ought to be. And then in the New Testament or the New Covenant is a new agreement that God makes with mankind. And both of these agreements are made to restore us, to reconcile us, to transform us from our fallen state into a state of being good, beautiful, and true. These two main covenants, the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Testament, are really, you could look at it this way, they're the two hands of God uh, that are both necessary and operating uh, in our lives to make us into what uh, we ought to be out of our fallen condition into a restored state. They are the hands of God that fix us, fix what is broken, and... uh, they change us from what we are into what we ought to be. Now, you can think of it this way. You, uh, you can think of the old covenant as the law, and you could think of the new covenant as God's grace. God's law and God's grace are both necessary for us to enter into a repaired condition. Um, the Old Testament or, or God's law is necessary because it reveals to us uh, the ideal of what it is that God desires for us. But the law without uh, grace is not capable of, you know, internal change. Uh, Grace without the law is blind. It doesn't know what we ought to be. And the two of those work together. The law informs us of what God's ideal is and grace uh, empowers us to change. The law is external to us Grace is internal in us. The grace of God you might liken to the law of God changing locations from the outside to the inside. And that's what we'll be looking at today. In the new agreement that God enters into with man, the the proximity of the law changes its location from outside of us into our hearts. Uh, Grace becomes the internal cure that the law externally points out is necessary. Um, If we hide from the light of the law, we will remain closed from God's grace, which is the cure uh, bringing the law internally to us. As we continue in our series entitled The Wellspring of Life, Examining Our Heart's Condition, today we're going to be looking at the change of location of God's law from outside of us to inside of us, inside of our hearts. God's law is the codification 
of what is good, right, beautiful, and true. And at the heart, God's law is love. At the heart, God's law is to love God and to love each other. Now, what difference does it make to us where God's law is located? If it's external or outside of us, uh, we may know it, but it doesn't, it doesn't have the power to change us. If it's internal or inside of us, then our desires actually change and we conform to it. How much difference exists in a heart, uh, you know, uh, that has the law outside of it or inside of it? Uh, how, does, how much difference does the location of the law affect us? How much better off are we um, when the law begins to uh, affect us in, internally, not just externally? How can I become a man or woman of integrity? Um, where or what I want, uh, you know, is completely integral to um, what is right, good, and true. A man of integrity or a woman of integrity is one who has internal desires that are consistent with external regulations. And uh, we, are, we lack integrity to the degree to what we want to do is, is what we ought not do. And we have integrity to the degree to what we want to do is what we ought to do. Uh, where is the um, division between duty and desire in our lives? Is there, is there a distinction in our lives between duty, what, we are, what is right to do, and desire, what we want to do? That's the question we'll be asking today as we look at this morning's message entitled, Written on Our Hearts. Written on Our Hearts. So we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning, and uh, Father, we thank you that the light of the law of the truth uh, finds its way through your will and through your power into our, into our very hearts, that through the gospel of grace, uh, we are changed from the inside out. And we pray, Father, this morning as we look at this, that we would allow the law of God to expose uh, in us what needs to be uh, changed about us and that we would invite the Spirit of Christ to come in and uh, continue to work his work in us, Lord. We praise you, Lord, for you have the power to change the hearts of men. And you've made that power available to us through the cross and through the empty grave. Come to us now, Lord, and even as we read your word, may we rejoice in the exciting prospect of you being in us and transforming us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, it says this. Now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human being, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve in a, at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was 
about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. I turned away from them, declared, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. For what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So we have in this passage a new covenant, a new agreement with God. And God needed to make this new covenant because the old covenant was not able to transform sinners into saints. Uh, the law was external and uh, it contained rewards and punishments that people's behavior might be modified. Modified behavior uh, from the fear of punishments or the expectations of a reward. But that external constraint was not able to actually change the hearts of men. Uh, an interesting quote from a um, uh, 19th century um, American philosopher, um, Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke dealt with this idea of two forces. Uh, he talked about two forces that can modify the behavior of criminals. He said uh, there's the external force of the law or there's the internal force of a good conscience. And Edmund Burke made this point. He said that if most men aren't kept from criminal behavior by the internal force of a good conscience, there is no amount of policing or police force that could keep social order. In other words, the idea here is that if 90, 95 to 98% of us don't uh, resist from committing crimes because it's within our heart or within our conscience to restrain ourselves from harming other people, then there's no amount of police force that could create social order. There's no amount of external threat or the threat of punishment that could keep social order. And so he's, he, it, 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 what he's talking about kind of parallels what I'm talking about this morning. There's an external force that modifies behavior, the force of the law, and the internal force of, of the heart, what we want to do. And uh, if what we want to do isn't conformed by what we ought to do, 
then the external force of the law is not powerful enough to restrain us. In terms of our sinful desires, there is this better promise. There's this better promise. The, 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 um, the law speaks against our sinful desires, our selfish desires. But the law external to us doesn't have the power to constrain us. But the New Testament or the new agreement has a better promise a better promise of that which can take us in from our broken state into a completely restored state where what we want to do is what we ought to do. And that's the theme of this morning's message is that God transforms our hearts. In the new covenant, in the new agreement, God agrees if we yield to him and surrender to him, if we give our hearts to him, he agrees that he will change our hearts or transform our hearts. Let's take a look at, again at verse 7. Um, verses 7 through 10, where it says, uh, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by, hand, by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and they will be my people So, um, what the new covenant promises is that God himself will change our desires from the inside out. The promise of the new covenant or the new agreement with God is that God himself, he will do two things. He will put his law in our minds. He will give us the understanding of his law and then he'll write those laws on our hearts. He'll conform our desires to the principles uh, that are inherent in the law. And as he does that, he will transform our very beings. Now let me uh, uh, illustrate this principle to you with a little bit of geometry. If geometry wasn't your favorite subject, don't worry. This is simple geometry. You know what a triangle is, right? Okay. So we start out with this idea here. Uh, this um, perpendicular line here um, that uh, comes off the horizontal line in the middle of that horizontal line where it connects represents the first five of the Ten Commandments. The perpendicular line represents the first five of the Ten Commandments which deal uh, with how it is that God deserves to be treated by us and how it is that our parents deserve to be treated by us. The first five laws of the Ten Commandments have to do with what is right in terms of our behavior towards those who are in authority over us. And uh, it talks about giving due deference to your parents, respecting your parents, and it talks about honoring God and God alone. And, um, uh, you know, that God would be singularly the one and the source of your devotion. And then the uh, uh, horizontal line represents uh, the last five of the Ten Commandments, 
which deals with how it is we're called to behave towards one another. Uh, how it is that we're be- called to love and respect one another's property, one another, not being covetous over one another, not lying to each other, not stealing to each other, etc. So the, the horizontal line represents uh, uh, the last five commandments and how we are to love one another, how we're to treat each other. Now, the, uh, the, the, the uh, diagonal line that's descending from left to right represents our desires, and the diagonal line descending from right to left represents our behavior. And the perfect life is lived, uh, or the righteous life is represented when our desire and our behavior are conformed to God's law. So you end up with this, you know, this uh, equilateral triangle here, uh, representing righteousness. Now what happens is, uh, when deception came into the world, deception um, is represented here by an extension of the horizontal baseline outside of the uh, perfect uh, triangle there. And as that baseline increases and, and gets further away from God's law, uh, when, when the deception comes in and we put our faith in what is, dece- is deceptive or not true, it, it pulls our desires out and away from uh, the perfect ideal. This is a representation of sinfulness. And uh, you notice there uh, that even in a sinful condition, some of our behaviors still intersect with what is good. We still do some things right. Uh, if you look at the bottom quadrant of the deception triangle, uh, not, we still have a remnant of our conscience. We still have, uh, you know, confirmation of our desires. We still do some things. We don't do everything wrong. But a good portion of our life is lived outside of the Ten Commandments or lived outside of loving God and loving others. It's a more selfish life based on deceptive ideas that if I... Uh, and my own master, if I lead my, if I'm the leader of my own destiny, if I do what is right for me, uh, then my life will be better. It's a deception that pulls our desires away from God. Now, what happens uh, in the transforming process uh, where God changes us from what we are to what we ought to be is that he writes his laws in our hearts and he puts them in our minds. And, and the process here uh, reverses this um, Notice the arrow pointing towards deception, uh, pulling us out of God's perfect ideal. Uh, sanctification is the opposite of that, where, uh, you, you know, he, as he writes his laws on our hearts, as he changes our internal uh, desires, we're moving back towards uh, conforming both our desires and our behavior to his law. And ultimately, uh, we can expect as we walk in Christ and as we're transformed by Christ, that those two triangles will be um, overlapping completely and will be restored to a state of uh, practical righteousness. And what's so interesting about the gospel right now is that somebody's cell phone is ringing. Um, what's so interesting about the uh, state of the gospel right now is that he, he already sees us as righteous in Christ that the righteousness of Christ that is perfectly confer, you know, conformed to God's law is what he uh, sees to us, that, that righteousness has been conferred to us. 
And uh, as it's been conferred to us and as God looks at us, he sees us as we are being transformed. He sees us into what we are already being transformed into. Now, there is no amount of external force that can change um, what we want. Uh, the law cannot change what we want. There is no rule that can cause us to change what we want. You know the, the, the funny illustrations about um, hotels that put up signs, no fishing off the balcony, increases the number of people that fish off the balcony. There's something about a law that, in fact, inflames within us the desire to break the law because we are, by nature, law breakers. Um, we want to be, live outside of cons the constraint, or we see the law as a constraint rather than a liberty to which we would want to conform. Uh, there is no external force that can change us. We can't escape uh, our condition. Uh, our desires will remain unconformed and we will remain unregenerate as long as all there is is the Old Testament and the law. But the other hand of God that transforms us is his grace. And his grace and the promises of his grace are a better promise. And they promise to transform us by God himself uh, working in us. Uh, what will it be like? Just think of this. Just join me in a moment of, of, uh, of joyful expectation. What will it be like? What will life be like when all of our passions, all of our desires, all of our hungers are to do what's right? What would life be like with all I ever wanted was to please God and to be a blessing to other people? What would be a life like that where I had no desires outside of those parameters, where all I wanted was to please God and to be a blessing to other people? What would a life be like that, with a heart that wanted only that? You know, um, it's so strange that uh, I'm sure with me and with you as well, uh, sometimes our surrender to Christ is a reluctant surrender. Uh, but whenever I reluctantly surrender my heart to Christ because of the battle that is within me, I reap the benefits of the regenerative work that he does in my heart. You know, 35 years ago, before I became a Christian, before I asked to receive Christ's influence in my, my, my life, my life, as with every non-Christian life, was a, non, a continual struggle to realize my own will. And uh, I often realized my own will when I was in a non-Christian state. The experience I had every time I realized my own will was that it wasn't enough. It didn't satisfy me. It just provoked me wanting more and wanting something else. And every time I got what I wanted, it wasn't enough to fulfill um, my desires. Since becoming a Christian, there are times when I try to get God to realize my will. It works out about the same as before I was a Christian, when my focus is trying to realize my will. But it is when I surrender to his will, to his superior knowledge and to his long-range vision, that I feel, as I know that you felt, the flood of relief and the peace that comes from being in his hands and having him 
in my heart and being able to say with conviction, you are my Lord. The flood of relief that comes when I wait on him and take refuge in him is so profound. I, I, I'm confused why I don't live there all the time. I can't really answer you that question if you were to ask me that. It seems irrational. God transforms our hearts is the theme of this morning's message. Point number one is <clears throat> when we become God's, God becomes uh, ours. When we, be when we belong to God, God belongs to us. Um, let's take a look at verse 10. This is the covenant I will establish with my people of, is uh, of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Our relationship with God through the gospel is one of mutual possession, where we belong to him and he belongs to us. We are his people and he is our God. I want you to think about this for a second, because love, by definition, is uh, mutually uh, uh, de by definition, uh, one of being mutually uh, possessing of each other. Um, you can't um, be in a loving relationship unless there's a mutual possession of one another. For example, would it make sense for me to say to you, um, look, I want you to be my friend, but I don't want to be your friend. Is that possible? Or I say to my wife, um, honey, I want you to be my wife, but I don't want to be your husband. Every loving relationship is a relationship of mutual possession, where each possesses the other. Now let's face it, in our sinful hearts, don't we sometimes want God to be ours but we don't want to be his. Um, every time uh, we say, Lord, I want you to do my will, but I don't want to do your will. Um, I want your blessings, but I don't want your guidance. Um, I want to call you my savior, but that Lord business, that's a whole different story. I want you as my savior. I want you to redeem me. Uh, the idea that I want all of the wonders of the cross and the empty tomb, but um, don't tell me what to do. I really, when it comes down to me, I know a little better than you, God. I'm a little more of an expert in my life than you are, and I'll do what I want when I want. Just, just do the salvation thing for me. I want your favor, but I don't want your guidance. H how well do you think that attitude goes over with God? Probably just about as well as it would go over with my wife if I said, uh, I want you to be my wife, but I don't want to be your husband. I want to be your friend, God, but don't expect me to be your friend. I want you to be my friend. Um, God gave his all. There is no doubt about God's commitment to us. When we look at the cross and we realize that he sacrificed his only begotten son to be a, an atoning sacrifice for our sins, 
God put it all on the line. He gave his all. He gave his fullness. He gave the fullness of, of himself to us. Uh, he gave a total and complete sacrifice of himself to us. Is his surrender to us enough to provoke our surrender to him? to his regenerative influence in our heart and to his transforming power in our lives. Again, this morning, uh, the theme is God transforms our hearts. And point number one is when we become God's, God becomes ours. And point number two is to belong to God is to know God. To belong to God is to know God. Let's take a look at verses 11 through 13. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more, sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Um, one of the ideas of the new agreement with God is that uh, being reconciled to him through the forgiveness of our sins leads us into a personal, firsthand knowledge of him. It's not something where we need to go to somebody else to be taught about him. When we are his and he is ours, uh, that is accompanied with that mutual uh, possession of one another comes a knowledge or a knowing of him in a way beyond what a person could be taught. Um, it's knowing God because the people themselves, rather than their, uh, uh, their instructors, experience and know him. And it says here that no matter what our social standing or our intellectual ability, we will know God for ourselves. Now, that kind of brings me down to my job. My job isn't to talk about God or to teach you about God. My fundamental job as a pastor is to bring you to him for you to discover him yourself. If you're depending on me to read the Bible for you and to interpret the Bible for you and to be the intercessor, the go-between between you and God, you got me wrong. I'm not, that's not my job. My job is just to point the way to say, hey, look, look for yourself and see how good he is. Because if you don't have uh, first-hand knowledge of God, my lessons on what God is like are pedestrian and very uh, ineffectual. Uh, the, uh, God, the knowledge of God can't be external if it's going to change your heart. It has to be internal. It has to be something that you yourself are experiencing. No amount of theology is going to change your heart if God's proximity is still outside of you. And no amount of, uh, uh, and there, if God's inside of you, then I don't have to teach you anything. I, we can discuss and point and encourage one another and discover together. But uh, the idea here isn't for me to be um, an intermediary or a go-between between you and God. It's for me to gather with you and go to God together and discover him together. Now think about it this way. Um, if I were looking at a beautiful sunset like the one on the screen here 
And uh, I wanted to share the beauty of this sunset with my wife and she's looking in a different direction. What would I do to share the glory of this sunset with my wife? Would I say to her, honey, as you're looking in a different direction, let me describe to you what this sunset is like. The sunset has a whole ray of beautiful colors from pink to red to orange. Uh, the clouds look like a mountain range. The sun looks like it's set in a beautiful setting of a, uh, it looks like a jewel set in a beautiful setting. You should, you should see it. Uh, let me describe it to you even more. No, I wouldn't do any of that. I'd say, honey, turn around and look at the sunset. Look and see it for yourself. Let's enjoy it together, how beautiful it is. If I were just to describe it to her, it would be a, a, a pathetic second-rate um, uh, option to her looking at it herself. Today, I say to the, you this. As your pastor, I say, turn and see and taste and see how good God is. Open your word and be touched by him in, in and through your uh, discovery of his nature, of his goodness. Let his truth and the truth of his revelation of himself transform your heart's desires. Let his word be written on your heart as you study it and as you look at it for yourself. See and, and taste him. Come and know him for yourself. The curtain has been ripped open on Calvary. The Holy of Holies is open. It's not open to just priests. It's open to everybody to come in and see and taste how good God is. To step in and see the, how good and beautiful and true our Lord is. And we need to see that for ourselves. Our God transforms our hearts. That God transforms our heart is the theme this morning. Point number one is when we become God, God becomes ours. And point number two is to belong to God is to know God. This morning I'd like to conclude by reading from Psalm, Psalms chapter 34, verses 8 and 9. It's an invitation that David gives to the people here. And let's take this invitation to ourselves. He says, beginning at verse 8, he says, Taste and see, the Lord is good. Taste for yourself and see, the Lord is good. Taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and... Uh, we just pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you as you are. We ask you to come in and we recognize in accordance to your law that we are sinners saved by grace. We thank you for the atoning sacrifice of the cross of Jesus Christ that covers our sins and puts us in a forgiven state. And in that forgiven state, Lord, we have no uh, reason to fear punishment or fear damnation. But we do nevertheless recognize that you are over us and we're accountable to you. And we yield ourselves to you this morning. We surrender our hearts to you, Lord. Flood in and fill us with your truth. We, we desire you, Lord, to be not only our Savior, but our Lord. We pray that you would write your will your law in our hearts that we would actually desire to do 
what is right perfectly and completely, Lord. May our lives be authored by love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be sure to check out our website at ultimateoutcomes.org where you can download sermons, read our blog, and check out a library of free Bible studies. If you'd like to support our nonprofit, please consider clicking that button in the top right corner that says Donate. We appreciate all the support and help we get. And thanks again for listening. Have a blessed day.